and uh, get started. Um, we're going to be in first, or sorry, Second Peter chapter three today. If you want to go ahead and turn there, but before I get started, one of the things that I wanted to mention is as I was preparing for this week, I and this may seem small to you guys, but I was just so thankful and grateful for, and just got this. Um, just gratefulness to, to study God's Word, because if you don't realize this, over the past, oh gosh, it would be 18 weeks, we've been able to study these two letters, First and Second Peter, which is a total of eight chapters, but we were somehow able to get 16, 18 weeks of biblical insight out of it. And that's not me trying to like toot me and Kent's horn or anything, but it's I think it's just a testament to how God uses his word, and even just these small letters, so much can be gathered from it, and I think that's something that is encouraging, and something that we should take um, as a huge encouragement as we go to God's word and, and study any passage from it. Uh, and so just, I want you guys to think on that, and, and, and uh, just meditate on that, and, and be prayerful for the Lord, and, and thankful to the Lord for uh, his word as we, we study uh, 2 Peter 3 today. So like I said, y'all can turn there. I'm going to pray for us before we get started. Father, thank you for today and for bringing us all here this morning. Lord, I just want to thank you for giving us your word, for giving us uh, scripture, and Lord, allowing us the opportunity to each and every day dive deep into your word to to understand you more, to know you more, to love you more, um, and to just constantly grow in our knowledge of you and grow in our relationship with you so that we can know what is truth so we can identify what is true and also identify what is false. Um, Father, I just thank you for uh, the lesson that we're going to have today. God, I pray that um, what we learn today about, uh, about who you are, about the different characteristics of you and um, the plan that you have for eternity, Lord, I pray that that's something that we would take to heart. Um, and God, that the things that I say this morning are not uh, my words, but they're yours alone. And anything that uh, comes from just me would be quickly forgotten. Father, I pray that you're with us this, with us this this morning as we dive into your word. In your name, I pray. Amen. Okay, so we're gonna jump right in. We've got a lot of ground to cover. Last week, Ken asked me to cover pretty much all of chapter two, and this week we're pretty much covering all of chapter three. We'll next week we'll end with really the salutation and Peter's last like final call, his, his say, this is your charge, because as we've identified, especially in the first chapter, Peter realizes he's at the end of his life. He knows that his time is coming to an end. He says, Christ has made this aware to me, so as I am understanding this, as I'm realizing this, I want you to remember these things. This is like my, my final charge, my final call to you. And so, we're covering a lot in, in chapter 3 today, but I want to start off by just showing you something a little bit in the first verse that I think we tend to overlook. So it says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. I think too often we skip over verses like this because we don't think that there's a lot there. We don't think that there's much um, insight that we can gain from this, but Man, I think if we do that, we're, we're missing a lot. Because in just the first half of the first verse of this chapter, one, we see Peter take a completely different stance. If you remember all of chapter 2, Peter used pretty harsh language. I mean, he talked about how false teachers were greedy. He talked about how they were insatiable with sin. They were adulterous people, how they uh, 
they were really just what he thought the worst of the worst. I mean, he even said, I want them to suffer in the uttermost darkness. That's what they deserve. That's what they're going to get and what they, what they need because they're only leading people down a path of destruction. And so you read this, this harsh language and you're seeing Peter wear his heart on his sleeve. But once you get into chapter 3, we see this shift. We see him, him turn and take a softer tone because he addresses these people that he's writing to as beloved. Now, again, we can't look past this. I know it's, it's easy, really, in any kind of introduction of uh, a passage or any introduction of a, a, of a letter, like here, Peter um, does this at the beginning of chapter 1, speaking in this kind of language, we tend to overlook it. But here, what we're seeing is this is a group of people that Peter cares deeply about. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, obviously... False teaching is something that Peter does not want these people to hear. Isn't some, this is something that he doesn't want them to, to take hold of. And he would tell that to anybody. He would tell that to any group of believers. But we see in this passage, he's using this word to describe these people, so it's obvious that he cares deeply about them. And as you read through 2 Peter, you see the urgency in which he's writing, saying, don't believe these things. He knows that, he, like I said, his time is coming to an end. But there's false teaching surrounding these people who he loves dearly. And he knows that the result of that, if they buy into it, is only going to lead them down a path to destruction. And so he's wanting to make sure that they don't do that. But we can see his heart for these people. We know that this is true because in 1 Peter and in 2 Peter, he is constantly, constantly reminding these people to remember the Lord. This is something that he says over and over and over again. And we're going to see it again today. In the, and so in the second half of verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, In both of them, speaking of both First and Second Peter, In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Now, this is important because, as I said last week, and as Ken and I have said multiple times, any time in Scripture or an author of any book of the Bible says the same thing over and over and over again, it's obviously very important. And it's something that we should listen to, something that we should look into, because there's a reason God, who, in his inspired word, has allowed something to be said time and time again. We see Peter say this over and over again. In chapter 1 of uh, 2 Peter, in verse 14, he says, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up, by way of reminder. And then the very next verse, in verse 15, it says, and I, make every, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able to at any time recall these things. And so Peter is constantly saying, remember the Lord, remember the Lord, remember what he's done, remember everything that he's done for you because it's when we remember the Lord that we're growing in our knowledge of him. And when we grow in our knowledge of the Lord, that is when we are able to identify truth and identify falsehood. But then today, we see Peter add this idea of stirring you up. You see, he, just as many times as he talks about remembering and reminding these people of the Lord, he says, I want to stir you up. And he's, he wants to stir them up by reminding them. So we have to ask, what does this mean to be stirred up? What is the purpose of it? What's the good of being stirred up, and really, do we need it? I think too often, or really, especially today, in today's day and age, 
we, we hear something or somebody stirring us up, and it's not usually a good thing. Usually stirring somebody up is kind of, at least in my mind, I get the idea of like I'm riling somebody up. There's, you know, it typically involves trouble, and it's not something good. But here, and really all throughout First and Second Peter, we see him use this phrase as a way of reminding us of who the Lord is, making us think on who God is. And then asking ourselves, do we need it? I, as I was, as I was preparing for this, got really convicted because, and guys, this is my pride, and this is me obviously not, not doing this the right way, but there have been moments where I'm like, man, I don't need this, right? Like, I, I work at a church. I study the Bible all the time. That's what I get paid to do. I'm in seminary. Like, I know all of these things. And that's not the right way to do it. Don't hear me say that that's what we should do. That's, that's my pride stepping in the way because, guys, there is never a point in time where we don't need to be stirred up. There's never a point in time where we don't need to remember who the Lord is. Speaking to this, I found this quote from Charles Spurgeon. It, this is from his commentary on First uh, and Second Peter. But speaking of this verse specifically, being stirred up by way of reminder, he says, The purest minds need stirring up at times. It would be a great pity to stir up impure minds. That would only be to do mischief. But pure minds may be stirred as much as you please, and the more the better. As Charles Spurgeon was, his, he was called the Prince of pe- uh, Preachers. And he himself says, I need to be stirred up. You know, this man wrote 150 books. He wrote uh, countless commentaries. He wrote, you know, s- just so many sermons, preached all the time up until his, you know, last breath. And that man himself was saying, no, I need to be stirred up. And I need to be stirred up constantly. Guys, the greatest among us, this statement is true for. The, it doesn't matter if you have been a believer for 60 years or 60 seconds. There's not a point in our life where we don't need to be stirred up. There's never going to be a point in our relationship with the Lord where we don't need to remember who he is and what he's done for us because it's when we do that that we are growing in our relationship with him. So this is kind of the, the backdrop of what Peter's going to do today. He, he, he's using this idea of remembering who the Lord is, remembering what he's done, what he says, as um, proof to show that what God says is true. Because again, when we're growing in our relationship with the Lord, we're only understanding him more, we're only understanding what truth is. And so that's going to get into where he's really going to go for the rest of this chapter, for the rest of at least our section that we're in today. Because he goes from, in chapter 2, talking a ton about false teachers and, and how to identify them, what they're saying, and the dangers of them, the harsh language that we see in chapter 2, to now in chapter 3, he really kind of goes on the offensive and says, okay, this is the argument that they're using, and here's where they're wrong. And so to do all that, he says, but first we have to establish that you have to remember who God is. You have to be constantly growing in your relationship with the Lord because just this teaching that I'm going to address today is not the only false teaching that you'll run into going forward, but this is a way of doing that. So he says, remember the Lord, and then he jumps in to say, okay, look to God's word. Remember what God says, and he, said, and he gets us to do this by saying, look at the prophets, and what they've said, and then look at what um, 
the apostles have said through their knowledge of the Lord. And what he's basically going to get at is this false teaching that was prevalent at the time that the second coming wasn't going to happen. A lot of people then were saying, it's been, at this point, 30 years. Jesus said he was coming back, and he hasn't. Where is he? What's he doing? If, if, he, if he was coming back, he would have come back by now. And so Peter's going to address that head on. But at first, he says, let's look at what the prophets and what the apostles say. So he says in verse 2, you know, I want to stir you up by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. And so I think, you know, it'd be proper for us to, as Peter says, look, if, if we're going to remember, uh, if we're going to understand this, we need to look at what the prophets say. And this isn't something that he um, uses just in this letter. In Acts chapter 3, we actually see Peter at the creation of the church say the same thing. Speaking to what the prophets are saying from old, what the prophets are saying is coming true, he says, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all of the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter, even in Acts chapter 3, is saying, hey, look back at what the prophets said. What they have said up until this point has come true. Nothing that they have said has been wrong. So why would we believe that they're wrong about this? But that's Peter in Acts chapter 3. But let's go back to the prophets themselves and see what they say about the, this idea that the second coming is true and that Christ will return. In Daniel chapter 7, it says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is ever, an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and shall not be destroyed. That's Daniel chapter 7, but this is another example in Micah chapter 1. It says, look, the Lord is coming. He leaves his throne in heaven and tramples the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath his feet and flow into the valleys like wax in a fire, like water pouring down a hill. And so we see time and time again, and that's just two examples. There's countless examples in the Old Testament prophets where they are pointing to not only the coming Messiah, but also the second coming, the judgment that's going to come during the return of Christ. Now, it's important to see that the, the prophets had a very difficult job, and it's a job that they took very seriously. And it wasn't one that came with a lot of fame and fortune, right? If you look throughout the Old Testament, a lot of the prophets were um, persecuted. A lot of the prophets were mocked, uh, not believed, made fun of. They had difficult lives, but their jobs were something that they were called to, and it was something that they took very seriously because... If a prophecy weren't to come true, the law said that that prophet had to be put to death. And so this is something that was very important to them. And if they said it, if they wrote it, then they knew that it was from the Lord. And so we see the prophets pointing to this idea that the second coming is going to happen. But then let's look at what the apostles say. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So this is Paul saying, hey, may God do all of this in you at the coming of our Lord. Uh, The second example I have is from Revelation chapter 1. John writes, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. The, those who were against him, everyone is going to see him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So we see the apostles, we see the prophets, all saying that this is going to happen. But let's just take an overview of scripture, just in the New Testament alone. 23 of the 27 books in the New Testament mention the return of Christ. Then if you, if you look at uh, the implications or the, not necessarily the explicit mentions, but the passages that it's implied, it goes to 25 of the 27 books mention the return of Christ. Even further than that, in the 260 chapters in the New Testament, the apostles themselves over 300 times mention the return of Christ. This is something that they're constantly talking about. And so what Peter is saying for them at this time, in this context, and what we should understand now is that, one, we can take Scripture for what it's worth. It is God's true word. And if God's word, the literal words of God, are saying time and time again, just in the New Testament alone with these examples and what we see with the prophets in the Old Testament, that Christ is going to return that's something that we should believe. If, like I said earlier, if Scripture is saying something over and over and over again, then it's obviously important and it's obviously something that is true. And I think that's the same. Uh, I think that's relevant for this idea of the second coming. But we're going to see that despite all of this evidence, despite what we have in Scripture today, obviously the New Testament is something that we have that they didn't, but despite all of this, we see that there are false teachers among them. There are false teachers among the people that Peter's writing to. There's even, I mean, honestly, people among us today who don't believe in the second coming. But despite all this evidence, they're going to reject this idea that Christ is going to return. And really, what Peter goes after is their argument, but we see a lot of times what they're doing is mocking. And to be honest, like mocking somebody's belief isn't necessarily a disbelief in what they're saying, but it is a very effective way to make somebody feel uh, less than. It's a very effective way for, to make somebody think that their beliefs are not worth saying, and it shuts it down. And so this is a lot of what's happening today. Peter's going to refer to these false teachers as scoffers, as people who are mocking anybody who believes in these things. So let's pick up in verse 3, because this is where Peter begins his, uh, really his argument on this. He says in verse 3, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That goes back to last week when it comes to false teaching. Remember, Peter says, man, the reason that this is happening, the reason that false teaching can take a foothold is because those who are teaching it are gaining from it. They're personally gaining from it on this side of eternity, and they're going after fleshly and sinful desires of other people. And the same thing is true here uh, in this passage today. Picking up in verse 4, it says, They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. 
So we see their essential, essentially their argument is uh, it's been, it's been a, you know, a few decades. Where is Jesus? If he were going to come back by now, he would have done it. But no part of this question is asked in a pure way, which I think is pretty easily implied. But sometimes we can find ourselves saying, Jesus, where are you? Like, we, we, we desire for the return to happen. We desire for Christ's un- return to happen because we'll say, you know, come Lord Jesus, come quickly, which I think is obviously a desire of all Christians. But no part of this question from these false teachers, these what Peter calls scoffers, is asked in a pure way. And in, in, instead, them asking this is really them implying that, you know, second coming, Christ's return is overdue. It's, it's, it's past due. And really, if you take that further, what they're saying is they think they know better than God. Guys, God's timing is perfect. I don't think I need to say that here. But God, his plan is perfect. His timing is perfect. And so the fact that these false teachers are saying, you know, God should have come back or Jesus should have come back by now is them saying, we know better than God. We know better than his plan. We know better than his timing. And so therefore, because this hasn't happened, it's not going to happen. We see their true heart. We see the, the sinful desires. We see um, what they're trying to lead others to believe in just this one question. I think implied in this belief, and something that you can see throughout chapter 3, is these people believed that God was not going to intervene, or that Christ was not going to return. God doesn't intervene with the world because in their minds, they never believed that he had. You know, to them, they only accept what they want to hear. They only accept what they can explain. So when it comes to, as we'll see here in a second, Peter jumps to explaining uh, God intervening with the world as an example in uh, a way to trust that God will, or Jesus will come back. He goes to the creation of the world and says, look at what God has done. God has intervened in the past. I mean, you can look in Scripture, God intervening with, with the world and the created order time and time again. But to them, they don't think that this has happened. They, they really believe in what this, this is called uniformitarianism. Just bear with me for a second. I'm going to explain this. But the, the, the definition of this is the assumption that the same natural laws and processes that operate in our present day scientific observations have always operated in the universe in the past and apply everywhere else in the universe. Let me put that into English for you guys. Basically, it's the belief that the laws of nature have dictated the past and they're going to continue to do so. Nothing will change. And so this idea that God doesn't intervene with his creation, God that God has not uh, done so in the past and will not do so, is what fueled this belief for them that Christ isn't returning, Christ isn't coming back. But look at what Peter says about this. He says that they're deliberately overlooking what God's word says. In verse 5 it says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That's speaking to the creation story that we see in Genesis 1. Then in verse 6, And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. So we see two examples of really God intervening. God creating the world and through water and with water, and at the same time using that same element, to flood the entire world in Genesis chapter 6. 
But this is Peter's response. He, he goes on the offensive and he points out the first flaw in their argument against the second coming. He says they're overlooking the words of Scripture. They're overlooking the facts. They're overlooking the truth deliberately. If you remember a few weeks ago, or a couple weeks ago, we talked about false teachers are willingly teaching what they're, they know what they're doing. They're secretly bringing in heresies, which implies that they understand what they're doing. And so the same thing is happening here with this belief, and we see the, the true nature, the, the DNA of their, their false teaching, because false teaching distorts, it, it distorts the gospel, it adds to the gospel, it subtracts from the gospel. As I said last week, the truth of God's word is the truth of God's word, and it doesn't need some you know, fancy putting together of it to make it look good. It doesn't need something added to it. It doesn't need something subtracted to it. The truth of God's word stands on its own. And we see that even in this, that these false teachers are deliberately overlooking the fact that we have multiple examples of God intervening and God um, interacting with his creation. So he goes after the, the flaw in their argument because he points out that God has interacted with and changed the world in the past. And he's done this because he created the world. This belief that everything is operating around what we now call the laws of nature, that's what they're basing their argument on. But here's the thing, what they're forgetting is that those very laws of nature were created by God. So even if they are operating within the world, that's what, that's what we have today, they were created by the Lord in the first place, and so they are God's creation. But we see in Genesis chapter 1, it says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I included this because we see that uh, in Genesis 1 and the rest of uh, the creation story that God is, is using water here, hovering over the face of the deeps, over the face of the waters, and God uses that as he begins to create the world. But after Genesis 1, verse 2, he goes on to bring the rest of creation uh, to fruition. And then we see the exact opposite happen with water, because once we get to Genesis 6, God floods the entire world. But here's the thing that we skip over a lot. Now, this is the second time in 2 Peter, that Peter has brought up the flood. We saw it last week, and we're seeing it again today. The flood wasn't just a natural disaster. If you read the Genesis 6 story, you see that it was a judgment. It was God's judgment, because at the time, nobody was, had, had good in their heart. It said there, were, it was, there was evil in the hearts of men constantly, always. That's what was happening. And so we see Noah and his family get delivered from this, saved from this, which is just another example of God delivering the righteous and destroying the wicked, which is what he promises uh, when it comes to false teaching last week. We see that here. But the flood was not just a natural disaster. It was God's judgment. But the reason Peter is bringing this up in this moment is because he uses the flood to say, this is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen when Christ returns. When Christ returns, it's going to, it's going to be this final judgment, and we see Peter saying, look at this story. Look at Genesis 6. What you're seeing God do is an example of what's going to happen when Christ returns. And so that is going to be something that happens. And so we see from that point, Peter jumps into another thing that, you know, don't overlook this fact. In verse 8, he's going to talk about another attribute of God that 
proves and points to the reason why we can trust God, we can trust Scripture when it says that Christ will return. Verse 8, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Again, using that word to convey how deeply he cares about these people. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. This is probably a verse that we've heard many times before, or a phrase that we've heard a lot when describing God's eternality. When describing that God is eternal, God has always existed, God has existed um, before time even began. Because that's the argument that Peter's going to run to. He says, God exists outside of time. So when it comes to us thinking about, okay, it's been, for these people, you know, three decades. Why isn't Jesus returning? Well, it's, you know, God himself exists outside of time. Our understanding uh, of time is different than his. You see, God is eternal. We are not. God, his, his eternal nature is not like ours. He exists outside of time because, again, he created it. It was his creation. So our understanding and our perspective of time on this side of eternity is very different than what God, how God understands it. Because here's the thing. The danger that we run into, the danger that these false teachers are running into by saying, where is he? Why hasn't Christ returned? The danger with saying that is putting human limitations, human understanding of, of time on a holy, eternal, and righteous God, which we cannot do. We are too often, and I'm including myself here, guilty of trying to, when describing or trying to understand God, putting human limitations on him. And that's exactly what these false teachers are doing. They're putting the limitations of our finite understanding of time on this earth, on God. Like I said earlier, God's timing is perfect. God's plan is perfect. And so we can trust in the fact that he will return in his perfect timing. But fortunately for us, this, is, this idea that you know, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to God is not just Peter's argument. This isn't something that he just pulls out of a hat. He does what he says in the beginning of chapter 3, and goes to the prophets, goes to the Old Testament, goes to God's word, and says, look, this is where we also see this. Psalm, uh, Psalm 90, verses 1 through 4, it says, You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You see, guys, what we hold to be a long time which for us is 2,000 years, to God is just a watch in the night. Can you imagine the false teachers who are just a few decades after the ascension of Christ at this time being here today? I mean, they're complaining after 30 years. Imagine them being here now. But we have to remember that our understanding of time is different than God's. God exists outside of time, and to him, a 1,000 years is like a day, and a day is like a 1,000 years. So I guess, you know, in our terms, two days, because it's been 2,000 years. But uh, what we hold to be a long time is just a, a watch in the night when it comes to God's understanding of time and God's existence within time. But then he's going to go on to say, this is actually a good thing, which sounds strange, which sounds backwards, but his point stands. He says in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Peter says that what we're seeing in, in, in this waiting is actually God's patience. You know, the, these false teachers, these scoffers were claiming that the delay in Christ's return was evidence that he couldn't keep his promises. They're saying, it's been, you know, three decades. Where is he? He's not coming back. If he would, or if he was, he would have come by now. So really, I guess we can't trust God. We can't trust the promises of God because he says Christ is going to return, but he hasn't. Peter says, actually, the exact opposite of this is true. This, this delay, or what they're calling a delay, is actually evidence of God's grace and his mercy. Because in this, more and more people are having the opportunity to hear the gospel and come to know the Lord. And how amazing is that for us? You see, while we wait on the Lord, what we're actually getting to experience is we're, we're witnessing his patience. Each and every day that we wake up, each and every day between now and when Christ returns, we are going to wake up and literally be in the patience of God. And how amazing is it that we get to see that and we have the opportunity each and every day, those of us who have been changed by God's grace and by the gospel, we have the opportunity yet again another day to take that gospel to the ends of the earth. Peter says this patience is what should lead you to repentance. But this isn't the only place that we see this. Romans chapter 2, Paul's writing, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God's patience. These, these characteristics of God are supposed to lead you to repentance, lead you to him. You see, the very argument that these false teachers were using against the return of Christ is the very argument that should lead them to repentance. They are witnessing the patience of God and not giving us all what we deserve, and instead they have the opportunity to hear the gospel. But don't miss who Peter is speaking to here, because if you go back and you read verse 9, notice that he says, God is patient towards you, towards the people he's writing to, towards the people he's warning about false teaching. And what he's doing is he's again reminding us, he's stirring us up, because he's saying this serves as a great reminder that God's patience is the reason why those of us who are believers had the opportunity to hear it, or had the opportunity to be saved by God. This is something that we can't forget. But it's also going to lead us to remember and to understand and to trust that the Lord eventually will come back. God will deliver on his promises. He's going to do what he said he will do. In verse 10, we see Peter make that point. He says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, God delivers on his promises. He's going to do what he said he will do. And there's going to come a day when he judges the world. There's going to be a day based on everything that we've seen in Scripture from the Old Testament all the way up to now. And, and what we also see in the New Testament, there's going to be a day when Christ returns. We can trust in that fact. 
However, we're not going to expect it. All throughout Scripture, we see it, it described as it's going to happen like a thief in the night. It's, it's not going to be something that's expected. We're going to yearn for it, but it's not something that is expected. It'll be like a thief. And here's just a few more examples of this phrase used to describe the second coming. In Matthew 24, it says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So we see here an example of this phrase used to describe the second coming, but it's just another passage telling us that Christ will return. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there's peace and there's security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Again, just another passage of the apostles pointing to the second coming of Christ, but using this description of a, it'll be like a thief in the night. So we, we will not know the time. We will not know the day. We don't know when Christ is going to return but we can rest easy in the fact that, man, we've got, we are witnessing the patience of God and have the opportunity to share the gospel more and more with people who need to hear it in a broken world. Now, when I say we're not going to know the time or the date of Christ's return, anybody who tells you that they do is lying. And what I've, I've kind of said before is, you want to know when Christ isn't returning? When somebody gets up on a stage and says, he's coming on March 15th probably not going to happen. And so anyone who claims to know that Christ is coming back at a certain time is not telling the truth because God's word, what we hold to be true, says nobody knows. Nobody's going to know. It's going to happen like a thief in the night. It's going to be something that is unexpected. But the only thing that we know for certain is Christ will return. Christ is coming back. And what this does is it forces us to focus on what kind of people are we going to be while we wait for this to happen? And this is the question that Peter's going to ask as he closes out this section. He says, since all these things are thus, since all these things are true, and all these things, he says here, are to be dissolved, speaking of what's going to happen to the world when we get the new heavens and the new earth after the return, since all of these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt. Peter brings it all full circle. He says, he, he speaks of life and godliness. He goes all the way back to chapter 1, where he says, you've got everything that you need for life and godliness. And he goes on to list the characteristics, you know, you, building on this, then this, then this, then this. And we grow in our relationship and our knowledge of the Lord. He brings it all full, full circle at the end of chapter 3, saying we've got all of these things, speaking about godliness. But now he adds another dimension to it. He says, while we wait for the return of Christ, while we are here, we should be known for our plethora of holiness. We should be known by the way we live our lives and that our lives are marked by God's holiness. That is something that should be a part of us. And those of us who have 
been, have been changed by the truth of God's word, guys, we, we have all that we need for life and godliness. This is something that we see Peter saying constantly. We should, as we wait on the return of the Lord, be marked by our holiness and our by holy, his holiness in our actions, because we remember we've got everything that we need for life and godliness. So it leads us to this question. One of the things that Peter is saying here is, who are you going to, who are you going to be as we wait for the return of Christ, while we, we wait for him to come back for a second time? Who are you going to be? If Christ were to return today, who would he find? Would your life be marked by holiness would your life be following a path of righteousness or would it be following a path of destruction? Peter makes this point very clear that, man, the way to, to, to the Father, the way is, is through him and him alone. Adding anything to that is only going to lead you down a path of destruction. And he knows the importance and the urgency of this because we're talking about eternal implications. That's a point I made over and over and over again. And so we want, Peter wants them to understand the truth of the gospel. And that part of that is our lives are marked by holiness. So as we wait for the return of the Lord, who are we going to be? That's the first question that I have for you today is, if Christ were to return today, what person would he find? Who, who, who would you be if he were to return today? What, what person would Christ find in you? Second, how do we both long for Christ's return and rejoice in his patience. This is a question that I, I, I struggle with because it's hard. Because, man, I sit up here and I'm like, I can't wait for the return of the Lord. But also as I sit in the patience of God, I understand that I have the opportunity to share the gospel with as many people as I can. I can take the gospel to the ends of the earth as we see Jesus tell us to do in Matthew 28. So how do we both long for Christ's return and rejoice in his patience? And then lastly, how would you address people who doubt the return of Christ? This is similar to a question that we asked last week, but I think Peter's still addressing false teaching. We've talked about God's sovereignty. We talked about how God's eternal. We've talked about all of these things God's delivering on his promises. All of this points to the return of Christ. People who aren't believing in that are, are believing something that is false. And so how do we address those people? Peter was dealing with them back in the first century, and we still deal with that today. These people are your neighbors. These people are your friends. How would you address these people, and how would you bring about the gospel into their lives? So y'all pray with me. Father, thank you for today and for bringing us all here this morning. God, just thank you for every single person in this room. God, thank you for your word um, and for the truth of Scripture. God, it's it's. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And God, I pray that it is something that we hold tight to and it's something that we hold dearly. And Lord, that your words would just um, infiltrate our hearts and they would, be, they would be marked in our minds constantly. God, thank you for uh, who you are and for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. And I pray that as we, we wait for your return, that you would just constantly be giving us opportunities to share the gospel, to present the gospel, and to show people that you have changed our lives for the better. You have completely saved us. And God, I pray that we have the opportunity to share that with as many people as we possibly can. So Lord, as we, we discuss these questions today, as we discuss your word, I pray that you would um, convict us, Lord, that you would be with us this morning and watch over us and keep us safe. It's in your name I pray. Amen.